This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got some amazing guests today. Um, we've got Adam Bant in the studio. We've got Hans Clevers and we have got Katie Mack. So we're going to be talking about, uh, well... Pretty much everything in science, I think. Dr. Lauren, good morning. Good morning. I'm very excited. It's my first show back for a while, and it's such a great lineup of guests. Where have you been? I've been in the UK, gallivanting around. Junket. <laughs> Lots of work. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I saw some pictures on Facebook, and there, were, there was you in front of uh, uh, Stonehenge. Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. you in front of basically every other um, <laughs> monument imaginable, and there was you at a whole other parties. It's pretty good. Well, the good mm. thing with the UK at the moment is their days are so long. Like the sun goes down at ten thirty at night, so really? you can do your work, go to Stonehenge. Gee, that must be a fair way from the equator. <laughs> Interesting. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am, and I'm really looking forward to a big show of science, politics, physics, biology. It's all in there today. <laughs> Stay tuned. Let's hope. Well, let's get the, um, the physics in. I'll introduce <laughs> our first guest. Uh, we have Adam Bant in the studio. He's the Greens Federal Member for Melbourne. You may have heard of him, and he's the spokesperson on science, research, and innovation. All three. Welcome, Adam. How are Morning. you? Morning. Good to have you back. Yeah, it's great to be here. This is my first uh, radio show post having a baby. <laughs> so uh, I only got up once last night, so oh. I'm feeling very bright and refreshed. How how young are we talking? We're talking six weeks yesterday. Six so, weeks. Yeah. It's, it's, it's happening because our um, I think our station manager has uh, recently um, grown his family as well. And uh, it seems to be, I think it's that, you know, summer months, a lot of stuff goes on. <laughs> Fast forward nine months from there, all of a sudden, you know, people go and leave late December. Anyway. <laughs> That's what happens. I like that you think about the maths of it. Like you're, you're yeah. doing the sums about yeah. how babies... Well, don't you? I mean, haven't you worked out what happened nine months before you were born? <laughs> I don't think I want to think about yeah, it. For me, I think it was Apollo 15. <laughs> Pretty sure. Within days of the landing. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Adam, we, uh, we digress. Um, we want to talk about some of the issues facing uh, Australia at the moment in terms of science. In particular, I thought that we would start with getting your view on why there seems to be at the moment a scenario where our international scientific prowess has been gutted in a way. Um, why is it there isn't a public outcry about this? I mean, if we were to all of a sudden say, you know, we used to be good at swimming, but this year we're not sending a team to the Olympics. I mean, people would go nuts. I think there'd be riots in the street. But in terms of science, this seems to just go, you know, quietly into the night. Why do you think that is? I think it's a good point. I think first thing to acknowledge is that it largely is happening. And if you look at the amount of money that governments spend, which is a pretty good proxy of how important mm-hmm. governments think something is, um, we are now spending... Uh, the lowest on science, research and innovation that we have spent uh, in Australia since they started keeping records in the late 70s. And uh, when you look at the government expenditure compared with other countries around the world, um, you look at us compared with other OECD countries, Mm -hmm. the last international figures that were available, only Greece and Slovakia are behind us. Mm. Um, And other countries are uh, are up to doubling the the amount that we're spending. And it's going down. And it's not just um, one particular political party that ROT set in under previous governments and has continued under this one. Um, So we're spending a lot less than um, we historically have. And one of the things that we find is that every time budget 
comes around, it's always science and research that's on the chopping block and governments mm. seem to treat things like NHMRC pots of funding, for example, as just these honey pots that you can dip into every time funding gets tight. Um, one of the things that's become clearer to me the more time that I've spent in Parliament is that it's probably not about uh, there being more facts or more evidence that's needed. I think that's a mistake that mm. we often make. If only yep. the politicians knew a bit more, then they might come up with a different mm. decision. I think a lot of it's to do with power, and I think a lot of it's to do with what, uh, who in Australia controls the year of mm. the governments, and what is perceived as being important in this country, and they're the ones who are always able to get themselves more money come budget time, or to get themselves some favourable tax concessions. Mm. Uh, mining industry, I'm looking at you. Yeah. And um, that sucks out money from the public purse, then there's not enough money left to fund the other things. And because I think, uh, on the whole, scientists and researchers have tended to focus on doing their jobs really well and not getting out there and patrolling the corridors of power in the same way that, say, the pokies lobby does or the mining industry does, then they find themselves shortchanged. Mm. And um, I think if uh, we saw the kind of outcry that there was when a government tried to impose a mining tax, and so that's made politicians of certain stripes go, well, hands off, we won't try that again. Where are we going to get the money? We're going to get it from science and research. Mm. So, I, I, having written many of these policy, policy documents over the years, I remember there was always, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, there was a push to move towards 3% of GDP. And I know that some countries are actually there. You know, they're, they're doing quite well in that regard. And, and you can tell those countries, you can, almost, you can always pick those countries just out of thin air because you can, you see the wind farms as far as the I can see. Um, where are we in that game at the moment? When you, uh, when people talk about three percent of GDP, they're talking about public and private mm -hmm. expenditure put together, and. Uh in Australia, we're at 2.2% of GDP and going down, yep. um, whereas our trading partners, many of our trading partners are upwards of 4% being spent on GDP. And then you look at other countries like Germany and um, uh, and Finland and so on, and they're sometimes even higher than that. I mean, South Korea's decided they want a 5% of their GDP mm. to mm. be invested by 2020. I mean, they're setting... people. Countries in our region are really setting ambitious goals, and mm. there is a real concern that Australia is going to be left behind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the direction that we're going at the moment. And um, so really it, it comes back to this question about how do we make make it such that uh, if a politician wanted to cut the science budget, there'd be the same kind of outcry mm. that there would be if they want to cut the, the budget to mining, for example, or to other sectors. And um, that's where I think we're actually oddly in a pretty good position in Australia because I think there is pretty broad public acceptance of the benefits of science and how much it contributes to our lives but we just need to galvanise that support somehow so that no one ever thinks about touching the science budget in the mm. future because they think they're going to lose their seat. I, I, do, I do wonder sometimes whether, you know, I see so many people walking, you know, me included, walking around with their smartphones. I mean, th this is science in the hand. I mean, there's no, you know, science and engineering, the whole lot. Um, in the hand and and we we accept that as part of our culture now but i wonder whether there is a lot more respect i think from you know the the marketing teams of the companies putting out of the out these phones and the people who are actually designing them and manufacturing and and doing all the hard work 
Well, I think there is an argument to be made for, um, for, for the concern that companies are having about where the future skills are going to come from. There's been a lot of um, commentary at the moment around the fact that, you know, if having skills in science, technology, engineering and mathematics will be essential for the jobs of the future. And I think that some companies are starting to become concerned about where the future workforce is going to come from. And, and when it comes to your point, Adam, about power, I think that there's really power in narrative and there's real power in stories and that scientists you know as as adam said tend to think well if only they knew the numbers and the figures and the evidence but really it's those (laughs) narratives that convince and i think one narrative that is actually potentially underplayed is about well what jobs are our kids going to get what Mm. smart kids in school right now what do we want for them you know Mm. what industries are we building for them what jobs are we going to create in the future Mm. It's, it's all very well and good to say you know people should be studying science but unless they can see where that future industry where those those great jobs, those interesting, fulfilling jobs that help make a difference mm-hmm. are, are coming from, then you're not going to get that pull factor. Well, on that, I mean, one of the things I would say there is that the biggest mistake I think we've made over the years with regards to science education is that we've tried to always sell it as do this and you'll become a scientist. Mm. And this is the greatest nonsense. What, what we need in our society is scientifically literate people in all fields of endeavour. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we're missing out. You know, I, you, look, I think we are and I'm a bit of a walking advertisement for the failure of science education in the country in a way I, I when I did um, year 12 uh, I, I did all physics chemistry mm-hmm. maths subjects loved it did a bit of that um, in my first year of university because the uni I went to it was you know free for all you could study whatever you liked in your first year so I did a bit of that bit of law and then came a time where I had to specialize in something and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do but I took some soundings from people and people said well look if you want a good generalist degree then go and study law and that's what I did and we need to get to the point where the advice that's given to people is no if you want a good generalist degree go and study something in the sciences mm-hmm. and, and and we see um you know regard, I, I sort of advise people to go out and have a look at um all the position descriptions you'll see on on various websites and often they'll say you know analytical problem solver you know th- these are the very skills that you learn in a science degree that unfortunately science degrees are not promoted or marketed some of them are starting to be but they're not mm. generally promoted or marketed as being for that purpose they're you know you want to become a chemist mm. come and do chemistry you know that, that sort of stuff and and i think there's so many um things that you can learn in in that that sort of mindset of problem solving that mm. those skills work everywhere and absolutely but uh, picking up dr crystal's point A key thing we've got to do, though, is make it attractive to people to stay here, and that means having Mm. secure careers in Mm. science and research. And if you're a prospective researcher or scientist and you look at the political debate and you see, oh, look, every budget time potentially they're going to cut our funding, Mm. um, then why wouldn't you have a look at options overseas and think, well, here's somewhere who's actually going to look after me, who's Mm. going to give me a proper contract for a length of time or potentially even a permanent position. Mm. It's great. Mm. People should go overseas and study and learn, but we don't want them making decisions not to come back to Australia or to leave because Mm. of the insecure work that is, you know, scientists and researchers... um, deserve to be able to pay the rent on their place mm. or get a mortgage or make decisions about families and not think that and especially for women in early to mid career mm. stages not feel like if you take a bit of time out who knows whether the money's going to be there for you afterwards mm. and and I think we we're not we need to have some big structural reforms to make science and research an attractive continue to be an attractive career option mm. and I completely agree with that and the other issue too obviously with science is often these projects take you know four five six 
plus years to, to complete. And, it's, you know, I'm quite involved in planning a lot of these big projects. And if you only have funding for a year, how do you actually guarantee that you're going to be able to complete what you've started, set out to do? It's heartbreaking. And, and that's happening in politics. It's happening not just at the individual project level, mm. but the big things like yeah. the National Collaborative Research Infrastructure. Exactly. Like here you have a government that is prepared to say, well, well, the previous government only extended a year by year. We're mm-hmm. talking about the kind of infrastructure that you need for five, ten years planning for. Mm-hmm. And then you have a government that says, oh, and in fact, we'll, we'll make the funding for that contingent on you deregulating higher education, two completely unconnected mm. things. Yeah. And people wonder why we, you know, if, if the politicians, if the, if the government's not prepared to value science mm-hmm. in a long-term way and take it outside of funding cycles, mm-hmm. then I can understand why people mm. get disappointed. So- but I think that one of the things that impressed me about the threat to that national um, research infrastructure funding was that it did start to make the front page. I was actually quite hopeful and quite pleased that when when uh, all of that happened earlier this year, that you know um, science research funding was on the front page of the um, Australian Fin Review. You know, mm-hmm. and, and all of a sudden I started to think I started to think, hey, maybe there is starting to be a galvanisation. Maybe there is starting to be a bit more coordinated voice. So so I, there's been little things along the way. Um, I think it was back in 2000. 2012, when they were, the um, then uh, federal government were talking about cutting uh, medical research, there was actually a very strong campaign, the Discoveries Need Dollars campaign, mm. and people did come out and support that. And so, I'm, I'm, and I'm starting to get a sense that um, that there is more appetite for getting behind um, a, a, a sort of a more grassroots um, support of science in the community. Mm. Well, I, I agree with you, um, and we're going to take a short break in a moment, and then come back and continue talking to Adam. But um, the one thing that worries me about both of those examples, and I agree they're there, is they are responses to threats. Mm. And they're threats that never occurred. And, if, and to be frank, I don't think they were threats that were ever considered to be uh, reality on the table. They were just, let's test the temperature here and see how bad it gets. And with the Discovery um, Needs Dollars campaign, Dr Crystal, you know well, the temperature there got red hot and the Gillard government was you know, slapped back in its seat over that one quite firmly. But you know, the the ongoing degradation of mm. funding continued in the background where the newspapers reported on that foreground item. So I mm. call that a win for the government in reducing science funding, not a win for science. And I think, you know, it's a small win, small battle, but the war's being lost. So mm. we, we have to get on to the bigger game, I think, of the overall structure not these little bits that are being teased out at us. That, and you know. I think you're right, and I think the question is how do we take something like that wonderful campaign mm, or the mm, response mm. to increase and make it permanent Broaden it. Yeah. and yeah. make every member of parliament feel like if they touch the science budget or if they don't increase it, mm. that there's going to be thousands of researchers in lab yep. coats out in their electorate. Because, mm. you know, to let you in on a little trade secret, politicians don't like to lose votes or yeah. lose their seats. Mm. And mm. when people think that uh, science is as important as the mining industry Mm. or the car industry, then we'll know we've won. Mm. Yep. We're going to take a short break uh, while Adam recharges the batteries in his helicopter. (laughs) As if. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're talking with Adam Band here on Through Triple R. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. Free Triple R. You are listening to Triple R. We are here in the studio talking with Adam Bant, Greens Federal Member for Melbourne and spokesperson on science, research and innovation, although we've told him to leave his uh, political affiliations at the door. What party are you from? I'm from the Greens. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> Almost Adam. Um, now, Adam, actually, while, while we're in the break, it's always funny the best things come out while we're listening to important station announcements. Um, but you, you were talking about the solution to this is to really get the campaigning going and to put some money into this over the next sort of coming Look, I think it is. Up. I don't know if you remember, but a, a couple of years ago, and you know, people will think I'm picking on the mining industry, but one thing you can't deny is that they're very powerful mm. and have managed to get billions of dollars uh, in government funding every year. Um, I don't know if you remember, if you go to the movie, went to the movies a few years ago, the, um, there were these ads that appeared where a woman in Outback Australia would start talking about um, how she loves her life and loves her life in Outback Australia and uh, then and she had a fluoro vest on and um, the sun was setting behind her and then a horse appears because that's got a lot to do with mining and then, <laughs> um, and then at the end it was like the little tagline was I work in mining and mining is great for Australia. Yeah, it and was like mining our story. That's exactly mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. Um, following that, following that, the surveys were done about people asked how many, what percentage of people do you think are employed in the mining industry in Australia? And people would say, on average, about ten percent. And in mm. fact, it's less than two percent. Mm-hmm. And um, but that ad didn't feature a lump of coal, didn't feature yeah. one bit of iron ore. It was about telling a story about the place of mining in Australia. Mm. We need to do the equivalent with science and we need to do the equivalent with research so that everyone understands it and then can understand the reason for it. And, you know, the, we, as, we as Greens are as guilty of just thinking if only we had more more facts, you know, if we if we made that ad, it might, it might mm. have been, f- for scientists, it might have been full of pictures of test tubes and formula and so on, whereas, in fact... How do we tell the story? Mm. And like, let's take a leaf out of the book of people who've done it well mm. and create the public support there for more money for science. Because that's, I mean, we're facing a big debate in the country about how much revenue should we raise, where should we get tax from. And if every election is all about tax cuts, then we're going to find this more and more. Mm. But, um, you know, it. You pay 38 cents a litre in tax on your petrol. In the mining sector, um, the wealthy companies get a rebate on that. That costs us about $2 billion a year. Why not say to people, what would you rather, um, give Gina Reinhart cheap petrol or put money into medical research? I yeah. know what they would say, mm-hmm. but it requires getting a bit bolshy and having those arguments about saying, let's put a bit more money in the pie so that we can give it to science and mm. research. Gloves off. Uh, now, let's move, well, a related topic, of course, but I want to talk to you about... Um, Australia's energy future and at the moment the word Australian future aren't going well together for me I have to say it's it's not looking so great first of all you think you? it's not great for you I have to look straight across the chamber of Tony <laughs> Abbott and if I want to break I look across my left shoulder and I've got Clive Palmer so <laughs> you've got to get yourself a, um, a t-shirt that actually has a little spinning windmill on it I reckon that'd be you know, every now and then you just sort of give it a flick <laughs> Just to sort of mess with them. Um, but in terms of Australia's energy picture, I mean, we, we are often, you know, cast in a very bad light internationally in terms of our energy usage. To be fair, though, uh, you know, going back 50 years, Australia had this incredible resource of coal. Other countries didn't have it. You know, this we, we built a lot off this and this was fantastic. And at the time, you know, it wasn't like we we're all unethical bastards. You know, there wasn't the issue that there is now. So, you know, countries that have to transform out of that economy um, are ones that, you know, have struggled somewhat. Where are we right now in terms of our international place in terms of energy production? I mean, you know, there's the, the seem to be solar panels on every second house, not quite every second, but maybe every tenth, but there's a lot of that going on, but where do we actually stand at them? Yeah, we're not in a good place. We were on track to um, get more than uh, 20-25% of our electricity being produced from renewables. The renewable energy 
target was working. Um, the government's response to the fact that it was actually going better than expected was to say, oh, well, it's obviously too successful a policy. It's having too big an impact on fossil fuels, so we're going to wind it back. And sadly, mm. that's that's what they've done. Uh, but you've got more than a million households that have got solar panels on their roofs mm-hmm. at the moment. And um, that's you, you, we're, not, we're not quite at the same level of penetration as, say, Germany, where they've been doing this for a while, but we're starting to get there. Um, but we've got policy levers that are being put in place to stop the growth of renewables and to stop the inevitable growth. I mean, Melbourne University Energy Institute's estimates that even without any subsidies, 2022 will be the year where solar will be cheaper than coal without without any subsidies. And um, there's every suggestion, you know, Moore's Law seems to apply to things like storage and to other developments as, as um, uh, in renewables. There's every indication that that could come sooner. Mm. And so, mm. in my view, government should be the midwife of the clean energy society. Like the mm. people are there, the technology is increasingly there. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, I think one of the next big um, frontiers for us is storage, and mm. what can we do about storage, not only for individuals but collectively. Mm. And one of the other I, things. I mean, I mean, just on that, I think, I think it's an interesting comment because we had our solar panels in our house installed in January, and I mean later I might talk to you about the um, the, the behavioural changes that made for our house as well, not just just where the energy was coming from but our behavior changed um but there was i had a long conversation about storage with the guy and and so we bought the system that was storage ready you know so they're, they're actually doing beta testing this particular company we went through of battery systems across australia i think in queensland now and i i honestly thought that this was sort of 10 years away so it, it was and you can get some australian assembled and partly <coughs> australian made storage battery storage mm. systems at the moment and uh, there's a lot coming out of germany and there's many coming out of china as yep. well um one of the big so I think it's only it's a very short amount of time before we see that on an individual household basis. One of the things that we've got to do is crack how we do it on a systems-wide basis mm-hmm. because you're right. I mean, essentially, not through maliciousness from anyone, but Australia's energy system is essentially a series of copper lines going out to coal mines. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily the best way to design a grid to have a renewable mm-hmm. system. And um, if one of the big challenges that we've got is how do you integrate um, storage with different production at different times of day to make a whole system run. And Australia is doing some pretty good world-leading research on that, actually, because we're one of the few places where you'd have the capacity to, say, take a whole town out and have it running, essentially, mm. on um, yep. coordinated renewables. And the University of Queensland Gatton campus is basically trying to give that a go. And uh, you go up there and you study um, uh, 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 engineering or science at UQ, and they're getting you to work, basically, on an integrated system that's feeding back into the grid that's basically powered there on the campus. And so I think... As one of the things Australia could really do is work out how to integrate storage with renewable generation, start taking whole towns off the grid, not just whole houses. And mm-hmm. if government can at the very least get out of the way, but mm-hmm. hopefully find some money to support it, I reckon we could be there within the decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about the 10-year plan. I mean, where, where do we need to be to catch up with the rest of the world at this point? And I think we are falling behind, you know, literally by the day. Where do we need to be in 10 years into terms of the percentage of renewables that we are using um, for our, you know, generalised energy use? Well, the Climate Commission has said that for Australia to do its fair share of global action to keep 
the planet warming below two degrees or to have a, have a better than even chance that we stop the planet from warming more than two degrees, which is um, a conservative estimate of what the guardrail is, uh, we need to become a zero pollution society by 2040 or 2050 at the latest. Now, that, as I say, for a country that's built on the back of coal, not through maliciousness, mm. but that's because what we thought we yep. could do, that's a big task. That's a big, big task. And so um, that means within the next decade, having uh, getting up to 40%, 50% um, production by renewables so that we can then hasten the transition. We can, I'm absolutely convinced that we can do it. You know, there's, we've got the brains and I think we need essentially an Apollo project for renewable energy. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, I was driving down the street the other day and I was behind one of these new Tesla cars. And I, I, I look at this and I thought, wow, this looks pretty flash. And I, and I looked up the price and I'm, I'm afraid I'm not in the price range of, you know, spending $110,000 on a vehicle. There was, there was a comment on the website, though, to be fair to Tesla, about how much you'd save on petrol. But I think anyone who can spend one hundred and ten grand on a car doesn't really care about saving money on petrol. I don't know. But, I mean, do we, what other parts of our energy sort of um, spectrum do we need to move across to renewables? Because there, there are, I mean, we... We spoke a few moments ago about about petrol and cars, and and that's a that's a fairly large industry. I mean, so many of our products are also produced from the petrochemical sources. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff there. We're shipping, you know, yellow cake as fast as we can load it onto the boat. What about these other areas? Well, we can do um, a lot of work in public transport. Public transport will actually be the solution to a number of problems facing our cities, and let's get that running on renewables. Let's have um, a high-speed rail running up the east coast that's powered Mm. by renewables at the moment. Only Australia and Antarctica are the only continents without high-speed rail. <laughs> right? At this rate, I reckon the penguins will beat uh, us to it. Really, so, really good, co- good company. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. But I think it comes back to what you were saying about needing an Apollo project, needing yeah. a vision, needing some kind Something of aspiration. Mm. I just think there's a big question out there, like what does Australia want to be when it grows up? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what does Australia want to be yeah. when it grows up? And we hear the phrase, our economy is in transition, Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And and I think that that's, that's, you know, the the energy um, piece is a big part of what we want to be when we grow up. And I want to endorse that 100%. And I I just want to also make a plea that in the course of all of this, we continue to stress the importance of pure research or Mm. basic research and one of the other things that worries me is that we've got a shrinking government pie and increasingly the government saying we're going to direct it to areas that we think in the short term will make money and I think Mm. that's incredibly short-sighted. How do you make you know, money out of looking at planets. Like, you're not mm. going to do that in the short term, but it's vital stuff mm. and we need to make sure it's funded too. Yeah, mm. pure research today is the applied research of tomorrow, is what I always say. It's all research. Mm-hmm. And if you don't fund the pure research, you can forget funding applied research in 10 years' time because you won't have any. Mm. Adam, I think that's a great place for us to leave it. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today and uh, good luck with your ongoing struggles um, against the, uh, I guess, the wind turbine evils of the world. Um, <laughs> Uh, we will talk to you again soon and um, good luck with your uh, new uh, little piece of joy at home. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. Right. Adam Bant, uh, Greens member, federal member for Melbourne and spokesperson for science research and innovation. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo here on 3RRR. Stay with us. 3 Triple. 
And we have our second guest in now. He is a professor of medicine at Utrecht University from the Netherlands. Hans Clevers is here on sabbatical to the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Um, and he's been brought in here by uh, one of our recent guests, Elizabeth Winken, who is from the University of Melbourne, the Doherty Institute. Welcome, Hans. How are you going? Good morning. Good to have you in here. Now, I want to sort of go back a little way in your research to where you started, because I think it's really interesting. You're an immunologist originally, and you were working on, um, in particular, on characterising molecules in the nucleus that uh, sort of regulate or control the, the immune cell function. Tell us a bit about these molecules. How do they work? What, what do they do? Yeah, so, so what we were after, and this is about 25 years ago, is molecules in stem cells in our bone marrow mm. that allows the bone marrow to make white blood cells. Yep. White blood cells help us to kill bacteria and viruses mm-hmm. and keep mm. us healthy. So this is very basic, very basic question. And we know that when we ask basic questions, we always find answers that are unexpected but have a very broad implication. Yep. So we found proteins that sit in the nucleus eh, where the DNA is of of these stem cells um, control the activity of stem cells we could show and then realize it was not only the bone marrow stem cell essentially it's almost all stem cells of our body and have to realize that as we sit here every organ gets damaged uh, wear and tear cells have to be replaced so every organ has its own specialized stem cells and in fact we uncovered a principle that controls all of those very different stem cells Mm. i mean tell us about that principle i mean what what sort of control mechanism is that because i assume that you need to make sure that they're not just doing this willy-nilly all the time because you'd be growing bits of organs you know throughout the body at the wrong time yeah so without stem cells we would not sit here mm. we would last yep. at the gut the, the, the organ that we worked most on the gut actually would be gone in four or five days we totally replace all of the cells of the inside of the gut in four or five mm. days so we need stem cells to replace to, to, to replace cells that, that die um somehow they know exactly how active they should be. So in the skin, they're, they're active every day and to a certain extent. If you burn your skin, they get more active, they replace the cells that are lost, and when there's enough cells, they stop again. Mm-hmm. So, so what we found, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go into molecular details, but is one of the pathways, one of the ways that tell that by which the body tells the stem cells, okay, you have to become active, make just enough cells, and now you stop again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that principle appears to be a general principle for all of our stem cells. Okay. If it goes wrong, that's actually how we originally found it, you get cancer. Mm-hmm. And particularly cancer of the gut, for instance, uh, colon cancer, very common form of cancer. Um, uh, results from a mistake that's being made in that particular signal. Yeah. Now, uh, this, I wanted to sort of move into this cancer space because I, I find it curious of all the stem cells floating around their body and all the different jobs that they do from skin to, to you know, various other organs to, you know, parts of our body, you know, as you say, the gut that we, we refurbish so often. Why is it that uh, there's this scenario with bowel cancer? I mean, are stem cells the cause of all cancers or is it just bowel cancer that the link is there for? I think it's probably a general principle that cancers arise in stem cells. Maybe mm-hmm. not always, but, but they're pro- because they are the cells that really are there to persist as long as we live. And they have to always rescue organs when something bad happens to them. So they're really built to survive bad circumstances um, and to divide, to make daughter cells. That's exactly what cancers do. Mm-hmm. But the cancers only have lost the capacity to realize when they should stop. So right. somehow, in many ways, where this can happen, these, these, these cancers don't stop, but they use the attributes of a stem cell, namely 
in bad times you proliferate and that's mm. what a stem cell does mm. Mm. so when you i mean not being a, a bio person myself i'm a physicist so you know i'm on i'm at the uh build the microscope end of the spectrum <laughs> as opposed to looking through it but um when you look at a cancer cell, for example, versus a stem cell, I mean, what are the major differences there? I mean, you, you mentioned that one has this inability to turn itself off or, you know, to, to keep keep growing. Um, what, what other differences are there? Actually, this is, is a very good question for a physicist. Is actually there are almost <laughs> there are almost no differences. That right. is the problem. There, there are minute, small differences between a, a bad cell, uh, a cancer cell, and a stem cell. Uh, probably up to three or four small changes in the DNA are enough to turn a normal cell into a cancer cell, and that has made it so incredibly difficult to design drugs to treat cancers because uh, if you get malaria or if you get bacteria, mm-hmm. everything in that organism is alien mm. Mm. to our body. So everything mm. is a target, as we call that, for drugs. Uh, cancer cells are our own cells, and they're almost normal cells. They have these tiny little changes that allow them to continue to grow forever, uh, but the rest of that cell is us. Mm. So it's very difficult to come up, and as you know, cancer drugs almost always hit innocent bystander cells. All the, all the side effects come from that. Mm. So it has been an enormous challenge. Only now, I think, we're seeing drugs that do this, that mm. actually target the drugs. Yeah. So the other thing we often think about with stem cells is stem cell therapy. So, you know, using stem cells for treating different things. And I know that back in the really early days of the processes, that there were issues with stem cells leading to cancer in, in some of those early trials. So is this process that you're talking about, is this how we've been able to improve stem cell therapies as well? Yeah, I think many of my colleagues, including my own lab, mm. typically work on both. They work on the normal, the, 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 the bright side of this whole thing, which mm. would be the healthy stem cells and then the cancer stem cells. Um, we try to find drugs that will not kill the healthy cells, but will kill the bad ones. Mm. Uh, we learned a lot, but actually cancer is usually not treated with stem cells because mm. the problem is there is already too much tissue. You're not trying to Mm. The exception would be bone marrow stem cells that are used, bone marrow transplantation, for leukemias. Mm. Now, one of the um, the things, of course, that often comes up with stem cells is a lot of controversy around this, this field. And I, I always find it amazing that you rarely hear about the idea of using stem cells to, to grow up parts of our body, take them out of the body and do drug testing outside the body where it's completely safe. I mean, this seems to me to be like the highlight of stem cell science, that you would be able to do this without any risk whatsoever to, to the patient. Now, you've set up um, a human living organ bank with your colleagues. Tell us about that, because it sounds like that's exactly what you're, you're doing in that process. Yes, so... It was believed 10 years ago that normal cells uh, in the lab will not grow. You can mm. keep them alive for a few days, but that's it. So, so it was actually one of the, the major things that my lab has done, if I may say so, is that we actually broke that dogma. We showed mm. that, that stem cells from the gut, that in our you know, in our gut divide every day for a lifetime, that we could mimic those circumstances in the lab. And this allowed a, a Japanese scientist in my lab, Toshiko Sato, who is now back in Tokyo, to grow mini guts from one single gut stem cell and he can, we still have them. They grow, have been growing for four or five years. They grow tenfold every week mm-hmm. and they look like entirely normal guts. We've transplanted them. They are normal. Mm-hmm. So we can now do this from many organs. Also from, we started in mice. We now do this in humans. Uh, but particularly from diseased organs like from cystic fibrosis kids or from cancer patients. And indeed this allows us now to expose those mini organs outside the patient to a large number of different drugs and go back to the, to the doctor and then 
and that's ongoing in trials. Eh? We have to mm. prove that it works, but advise the doctor on what would be the best drug for that particular mm. patient. It's just the next step in personalised medicine. It's, mm. it's just it, rather than saying here's one drug that we think works on the majority of people, we'll try it on you. It's a, it's the ability to go ahead, go away and do the research and come back and say no for you, this is the best drug for what you're going through. I just I just it's just a phenomenal breakthrough. Mm. Yeah, we've, so we, we've actually, we are doing this in cystic fibrosis at the moment. So there is a fantastic drug that is registered for about half of the patients. The other half have unique changes in their genes. They will never be tested. And we got a few kids that we tested their mini organs with these drugs and found that they do work for those kids in the lab. One of them got treated a few weeks ago and is actually now back on the soccer field. He was very sick. Mm. All right, that's extraordinary. And so that's the first real example that we've helped a patient, a single mm. patient, with these mini organs. But presumably that also allows you to go through what I would call the, sort of the back catalogue of pharmaceuticals where for, for efficacy reasons certain drugs you know below a certain level were just shelved but given what you can now do you can work out okay if there are only 13 out of 100 people who this drug is useful for but boy is it useful you can go and and essentially test for that yeah for this we've set up this large biobank so mm. patients are asked to donate their tumor tissue without benefit for themselves mm-hmm. to this bank yep. uh, it's a it's a non-for-profit foundation actually companies have contracts with this foundation they may test any kind of drug that they have to see if it would work after all certain combinations that i've never thought of um, and the money that the foundation makes goes back into more cancer research mm. Look, it's extraordinary stuff um lauren you got one oh, it's question? a really yep. quick one yeah just how, how long does it actually take to grow these mini mini guts for cystic fibrosis patients mm. uh it takes seven to ten days we get a little bit of tissue you know cubic millimeter yeah. of tissue from the doctor we grow it and about 10 days later we can have the, the drugs test done and, and advice back to the doctor mm. fantastic Look, it's phenomenal stuff and if you want to hear more about this folks um hans is giving a dean's lecture on the 10th of august which is um, just over a week away. I think, what's the date today? It's second. the second. Um, it's at 6pm at the University of Melbourne. It's a free public lecture. There will be plenty of information there via the university's website um, and we'll link from our Facebook site to that as well. Um, what's it going to be about? Similar stuff, but explained <laughs> in, a, in a way that probably people... Lots of movies. Oh, lots of movies. Well, yeah, yeah. I think we should go. Um, this is radio. We can't quite get the visuals out there, but, you know, we do our best. Hans, thanks so much for coming out. And, look, we hope you have a great time here in Australia. Um, you'll certainly um, be well regarded, and it will be great for many people to hear this story of, of where all this stuff started and where it's going. And the cystic fibrosis um, story is just one that will inspire many, I'm sure. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. Hans Clevers is a professor of medicine at Utrecht University in the Netherlands and is here on sabbatical to the Walter Eliza Hall Institute. Three triple R. We are joined in the studio now by Dr. Katie Mack, who we've had in here a number of times before, I believe. She's from the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne, is an astrophysicist. But you say that in pubs all the time. <laughs> it's you know it, sometimes sometimes it, it's a it's you, you know I can say either I'm an astronomer or I'm a physicist or if I want to really scare people theoretical astrophysicist. Oh, you yeah, know, there you are a few it. different options. Yeah. What does that mean? Does it mean you don't touch anything? Uh, it means that I make stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good old dig there. I was in the experimental area. So, uh, you know, we, we, it's called a telescope. <laughs> anyway, look, we uh, last time we had 
you on here, we were talking about the uh, gold mine that was mm-hmm. up in Sale, I believe. Stall. Stall. Yeah. Got the S right. Um, yeah, they're basically next to each other, those towns, right? <laughs> Not at all. Um, and how there was this idea of turning this into a dark matter um, experiment of some type. And, yeah. and this has now been funded. Tell us what's it's, going on. Yeah, it's going great with the funding agencies. Um, so there's this gold mine install, and it's sort of the, the mining part is sort of getting less important. And so, mm. um, so they, they are looking for new things to do with the mine. And, and what we're going to do is, is put a, physics lab in there so it's uh it's called the stall underground physics laboratory and we're going to have a dark matter experiment called saber which is a uh, we're we're, it's a dark matter detector and it's actually two dark matter detectors we're going to put one in stall and one in italy and compare the the signals and hopefully find out something new um Mm -hmm. but yeah the it's it's going really great. I, so I'm part of the collaboration for this, and we've got uh, we've got funding from the federal government, from the state government, and now from the ARC. That's so, great. So uh, we're, we still have a few uh, proposals in there, but it's it's looking really good. I love the fact that this all came about because you did an interview yeah, about yeah. Yeah. dark matter <laughs> and what you you'd be like, oh, we'd need to put it somewhere underground to to be able to do the experiments, <laughs> and and right. then all of a sudden someone emails you and says. Want to buy a used gold mine? <laughs> yeah, basically, basically. Yeah, yeah so with I, no gold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I did an interview for the Economist about another underground dark matter detector, and I got this email. It was it's the weirdest email. It was it, you know it started out. I know this is going to sound strange, but you know, I, I, I usually <laughs> delete those emails yeah, at the yeah. end of that line. At first, I yeah, yeah. At first I was really I was really suspicious, but they they had uh, they had attached a scanned copy of the Economist article with like my name highlighted, and they said you know I read this the Economist this article, you know, what would you need to do a dark matter detector in a gold mine install? How deep would you need it to be and stuff? And, you know, as a, as a theorist, I'm, I wasn't sort of up to date on how you build a detector, but I, I knew some people who did, so I forwarded it on to Jeremy Mould, who's at Swinburne University, and um, and he'd been sort of looking around at, at mines to, to try to find a place to do this experiment, so it just really came together, and mm. and it, and that was only about a year and a half ago, so it's been it's been really fast, um, yeah, really yeah. fast developing, and it's gone super well, and, you know, I think it's it's one of these things that kind of ticks all the boxes in terms of government funding, you know, it's, it's a regional development project, we just, there was a big award um, for uh, regional development is connected to this project, um, and it's you know sort of connecting with the mining sector, and it's got this uh, you know it's sort of groundbreaking you know first in the southern hemisphere kind of physics. So it's yeah it's it's a really fun thing to be involved yeah. in. Well, I'd say two things very importantly. Uh, one is you know anyone out there who questions public outreach of science, <laughs> suck it. Here's an example <laughs> of, of you know coming back and, and yeah. as a result of you guys only have the money for this project as a result of that outreach i mean there's there's yeah. only one way to spin that story mm-hmm. and second do the people installed have any idea what physicists are like <laughs> are they ready for this uh, the, the people of solar are, are are thrilled uh, no no seriously like it's um there as far as i can tell you know i went down there for the stakeholder meeting um a couple months ago and and um you know the the mayor is thrilled like everybody's really excited because it's going to be you know it's going to bring hundreds of jobs and mm, it's going to yeah. be this um you know this big uh, construction project that we're going to build an outreach center yep. um you know it, it'll be a big project it'll really revitalize that that community so, i think I'm so. just, you could potentially become 
become the mayor of Stall <laughs> as a result of bringing all these jobs in. You could you could campaign that. I reckon I we could make that, that happen. <laughs> mayor Mac. <Yeah. laughs> Absolutely. Now, I mean, it's it's an unusual environment though for most people to be in. I mean, I've been down the mines in mm-hmm. Bendigo and so forth, and you know, I wasn't a miner; I was a tourist. <laughs> yeah. um, and it is a freakily, uh, you know, kind of buried myself kind of moment when you're un- that far underground. Yeah. Uh, um, have you have you been down there I and have, had a look? Yeah, yeah. I went down during the stakeholder meeting. Um, mm. It was it was really interesting. I'd actually been in a mine for physics before. So okay. I, I used to work on the Super Kamiokande neutrino detector in Japan, and that's also a mine you know, one kilometer underground. In that case, it's a zinc mine. Yep. But, um, you know, you you do the same thing. You drive in and you're under a kilometer of rock mm-hmm. and you just kind of have to not think about that too much. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But it was interesting. It sort of, it, it brought back memories because it kind of smells the same, you know, this sort, yeah. of, this sort of wet rock sort of, I don't know, environment. It was a little bit warm. It, it gets really warm and humid down there. Um, but yeah, but actually at the, 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 neutrino detector was a lot scarier because they were actively mining for zinc while we were down there. So I would right, be sitting in yeah. the control room and every once in a while, <laughs> well, every once yeah, in a while yeah. someone would come in and shout something in Japanese and um, you had no idea what was going on. But a few minutes later, the room would start shaking. <laughs> so they, they, were, they were doing <laughs> blasting. Stuff. Well, there's yeah. got to be, I'm going to, I'm going to think, you know, I'm into film. So I'm going to think up a film that everyone has to watch when they first get in there. Because I know that uh, at some of the stations down in Antarctica, they're forced to watch the thing. And then oh, some of our right, guests yeah. on the show have told us this in the past. And I think that's entirely appropriate. Um, so there's got to be one that you guys watch. I know there's an old horror film called Buried Alive. That might be appropriate. But we'll, we'll think of something that you physics people need to watch okay. um, while down there. But um, so when does the experiment go live, or is it already live? No, it's it's right now. What what we're doing is doing a bunch of measurements for the background. You know, looking at the count for muons coming from the cosmic rays, and looking at ne- neutrons coming from radioactivity in the rock. All of this kind of thing. Mm. Um, so there's we have a, a sort of it's called a mine refuge it's a sort of container ship or no like you know a container sized box um that's got air conditioning and stuff inside and there are a whole bunch of experiments in there that they're doing all these tests and there's been people from university of melbourne going down every couple of weeks to to do testing um the actual building of the thing will take a few years so i think Mm -hmm. that construction will be the next five years or so and then we'll be taking data from there probably yeah now look it sounds fantastic now um we've only got a minute to go but I, i thought i should I should ask you? W- were you excited last week? Uh, are you still excited about the Pluto flyby? Oh, I'm so excited about Pluto. Yeah, yeah I've, I mean, I'm I'm trying to kind of step back a little bit from it because it has been sort of this all Pluto all the time kind of thing. Yep. But um, but yeah, it's just it's fascinating. You know, it's 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 a, it's a new world, and and mm. you, you, how often do you get to see the surface of a new world? And 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 it's got all this really fascinating. Uh, geological processes going on that we don't really understand you know there's like uh, there's nitrogen ice flows and these massive uh water ice mountains and and this atmosphere this layered atmosphere mm. that extends much way. farther than we mm. thought so yeah it's it's really really interesting and, and really exciting to see and i know a few people who are connected to the uh to the mission it's dr crystal's ipad there going to <laughs> she's watching she's watching videos during the uh during the i don't know what that means katie <laughs> that's all right um no but it, but so yeah cool it has been it has been super exciting yeah. yeah and we've got about uh five percent of the data at this point uh something like that yeah, yeah. there's there's tons coming soon yeah or as so. i like to say five percent of the excitement 
Right. Yeah, yeah. So a lot more to come. Look, yeah. it's, it's great having you. We're going to have to talk Thanks. to you again um, because at some stage you want to talk about your other work. Okay, you yeah, have yeah. Been tra- you've been traveling almost more than Dr. Lauren, although I'm told that's impossible because um, <laughs> she's always on a flight. But uh, we will keep up to date on this Dark Matter Goldmine project as it goes Thanks. along because I think it's so cool it to is, have yeah. that in, in, a, in a regional town as well and, and bringing, as you say, so many jobs in. Yeah, yeah. All because of science outreach, which yep. is, you know, something we're kind of for here. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Katie Max, thanks so much uh, for coming in. Thank and you. Um, we will talk to you again soon. Katie Mack is a doctor from the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne, an astronomer. Sometimes she scares people by saying theoretical astrophysicist, but um, <laughs> she's a friend to us. You've been listening to Einstein the Gogo on 3RRR. Dr. Crystal, thanks oh, so much. Always a pleasure. Is your iPad under control? Everything's under control. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Dr. Lauren, good to see you. Good to see you too. I am Dr. Shane. Until next time, remember science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.